Hello and welcome to the We Are Guernsey podcast, where we bring you interviews with leaders from the global finance industry, as well as news and developments from Guernsey's financial services sector. My name is Brandon Ashplant and I am Senior Strategy and Technical Executive here at Guernsey Finance. Guernsey is a leading global finance centre. The success of the industry here is underpinned by economic substance, political stability and asset security, and we are committed to the cause of sustainable finance. To find out more about Guernsey's success in sustainable finance, tune into our sister podcast, the Sustainable Finance Guernsey podcast. Today, however, I am delighted to be joined by Mike Picard, Director of Global ILS, Insurance-Linked Securities and Commercial Management at AOM. Mike is based in Guernsey and has primary responsibility for the growth of AON insurance managers in ILS, commercial and uh, life insurance across EMEA. So without further ado, welcome, Mike. Hi, Brandon, and thank you for inviting me on the podcast. So as you mentioned in your opening, my current role is as a director of AON Insurance Managers. That's our global ILS commercial management and life proposition where I'm currently focused on growing our EMEA book is our management capabilities in these areas of our business. So I also sit on a board of a few companies that we manage in Guernsey. Um, These include sort of transactions for pension longevity swaps um, and Dunnett Ree, the Red Cross, so the entity that I spoke about last time I was here doing a podcast with, with you all. So I'm lucky enough to have spent the majority of my career in Guernsey. I started off working in audit with PwC, as many people seem to do so in the island's finance industry. And I've worked for some great companies along the way, worked with some great people, and I've really been able to learn about all parts of the island's sort of financial services sector. And such, I think, um, is the, you know, Guernsey standing expertise and breadth of services, particularly in the insurance space, that, that it's great that I'm able to get the exposure necessary to move into a global role uh, without really having to leave the island of Guernsey. Um, outside of work, my life really is focused a lot around my family. My young son is eight-year-old. I, I enjoy sports. I'm a football coach, coaching my son's local football team. I used to say I'd never do another exam when I did my accountancy exam many years ago, but now I seem to spend my time doing FA coaching badges and stuff like that. So it keeps me it keeps me busy through it, you know, when I'm not at work. Brilliant. Well, um, I guess we'll just jump straight into things, Mike, if that's okay. Um, yeah. In Guernsey, we have sort of recently celebrated the the 100-year anniversary of captive insurance in the island. Um, and since then, obviously, Guernsey's gone on to grow into Europe's number one kind of captive insurance domicile, if you like, um, with I think more than 300 structures based now in the island. For those listeners who might be unfamiliar with the concept of captive insurance, could you just talk through the history of captives and, and some of the benefits of setting up a captive insurance vehicle? Yeah, so as as you mentioned, last year was a big year in the world of captives. We had a couple of milestones. We had the 100 years of the captive where we did a big event in London for to celebrate that, but it was also 25 years of the PCC and with White Rock being established in 1997. So both, both captives and PCs are now a big part of the insurance and finance landscape world, you know, all over all over the place. So what is a captive? So I guess in pure simplistic terms, a captive insurance company is a company that's set up to insure its owner or shareholder. When I describe captives to people for the first time, I try and make it as relatable to everyday life as I can. Um, if you own a house, right, you buy your house insurance, you pay your premiums every year just in case your house falls down. Now, 
in all likelihood, your house won't fall down and the insurance company makes a nice profit of your premiums. There's, the same really applies in the corporate world. If you think the premiums you pay are likely to be greater than the claims you make, then why would you give your money to an insurance company? Um, so hence, corporates set up captive insurance companies to help finance their risks. So these captives, they, they of course, become more sophisticated. These days, they write a lot more than property risk, um, but the concept remains the same. So if I look back to the history of the captive, I'll really talk from a Guernsey perspective here. Um, the first captive in Guernsey was established back in 1922, hence the 100-year the event last year, and it was called, called Commercial Insurance Company Limited. And what it was doing is it was insuring the chain of properties for a, a chain of butchers. Now, at Aon, when we moved offices a few years ago, we actually found the first company seal or stamp for that company. Um, so that, that has pride of place in our office now as, you know, the first company seal from the first captive in Guernsey. But it wasn't really until the 60s and 70s that the, um, the captive industry that we know now today started growing. And as you mentioned before, we've now got over 300 entities registered in the, here in the island. And I believe there's, you know, around 7,000 worldwide across various domiciles all over the world. Um, so... Other than the simplistic example I used to around financing your risks, um, insuring your properties to make a profit, there are other key benefits to, to setting up a captive. So with a captive, you can tailor the insurance coverage to meet your risks. So you can ensure what is your risk, what is not on the basis of what is the risk for all other companies that are similar to you. Um, you can reduce your cost of insurance. You can improve your cash flows. So you can include sort of flexible premium payment terms in your insurance agreements. You can retain investment income. So if, you've, if you um, are collecting your premiums in your vehicle these days, now interest rates are going up. You can start to, to make a little bit of a return there on those funds. You can insure difficult risks that could be uneconomical in the traditional market. Um, so new risks, difficult risks. Um, you may not be able to get a price that makes sense from a traditional insurance company because they they don't know the risk. They haven't got the data sitting behind it to give you an accurate premium price. And you can also reduce sort of market-driven volatility in your insurance premiums. So keep your insurance premium relatively sort of smooth as opposed to going up and down as and when events happen in the world. Now, another key reason um, to set up a captive is something that um, we quite often forget about is that it can actually help you identify risks, trends and problems within your organization. So if you've got a captive, you've got a lot of data to hand in terms of claims, so on and so forth. And if you're a company that focuses on risk management, so it spends a lot of money putting safeguards in place, um, making sure the trip and slip hazards aren't present and so on and so forth. Um, and having a captive means the losses are paid out of your own pocket as opposed to the market. So, so that if you can reduce your losses, then you can decrease the level of claims. So if you do good risk management practices, your level of claims reduce, and that helps you as opposed to the insurance market um, to, make, to make those profits. Brilliant. And, and that's a really great insight, I think, for, for those who are less kind of familiar with the, with the captive um, sector. Um, I understand that Aon has conducted a risk management survey. Um, 
you know, given the current state of the macro environment um, with stagflation, uh, you know, war in Europe and so on, what are some of the kind of emerging risks that, that the, the survey identified as being sort of relevant to, to insurers? So, like you, you mentioned, we do a risk management survey every other year where we um, send out a questionnaire to, to our clients and those people who are sort of responsible for buying insurance for, for their groups or for their entities. Now, every time we do this, it becomes apparent that these risks, they're changing. They're changing at a rapid rate. So if we go back to, you know, 10, 20 years ago, you were looking at, property damage business interruption you know what if your property burns down and you can't make your things anymore so how would you how could you finance that but it's now changing as i mentioned now the things at the top of the list are things like cyber risk it's brand and reputation it's your supply chain it's climate change it's intellectual property unsurprisingly it's things like pandemic because you know after covid so we call this the um we call this the sort of the big six at Aon. So these are the big six sort of new risks that we see and where we see captives being used more and more. Hmm. And and how might these risks be managed uh, for insurance industries and kind of the captive sector in particular? Well, I guess that as they're relatively new risks, um, there's not really an insurance product on the market to cover them so you can't go to your mainstream insurer and say can i buy a property against pandemic or supply chain or, or whatever it may be and as such as such that means that that's the perfect sort of thing for a captive because when you've got a captive insurance company you can design your own insurance policy based upon the data and, and bits and pieces that you have to hand and so therefore you can design something that works for you that focuses on the risks of your group of your parent at a price that works based upon what you know so again like i said about if you're spending a lot of money on improving risk management then you can factor that into your premium that you charge your captive as opposed to if you were going to the market where if you went to a traditional insurer they wouldn't know or wouldn't care necessarily what you're doing in the background so that's what we where we see where we see sort of captives being used to manage these risks in particular. Um, what we also see as well is like we said, if a traditional insurance company doesn't want to sell you a policy like that because they don't have sufficient data, they don't understand the risks, then if you do put it into your risk, then you can retain the risks, you can develop your own data. And ultimately you can go back to the insurance company in a few years' time and say, look, this risk you didn't want to price or you didn't want to insure us with um, because we didn't have a because we didn't have you had no data here's our data right do you want to do it now and then you can move sh even shift that on from your from your own balance sheet through your captive back to back to the traditional markets mm. and sort of i guess on the flip side to that what sort of businesses sort of typically I guess have traditionally sort of set up captives um and do you have any examples of these you know what, what industries have used captive vehicles traditionally speaking well it's probably fair to say that a lot of established major companies already have captives you know I saw a stat a couple of years ago that I think it was like 90 percent of the fortune 500 or something had captives all over oh. the world and and also in Guernsey alone, I think 20% of the FTSE 100 have captives that are that are based and managed out of Guernsey. So 
you could probably it'd probably be fair to say that all types of industry use captives. You know, mm -hmm. Guernsey's home to some of the biggest captive insurance companies in the world, and a few examples. You've got BP, um, Rolls Royce, BHP, Billiton, Acer Computers, Associated British Foods. You know, you could go go on and on with the names of companies who have captives here, and historically, most of them did very similar sort of business through their captives. So there was a lot of sort of property cover, like we've mentioned before, um, liability type covers. But these captives, we are starting to see as well them being interested in those other covers or those new risks. And those are conversations that we're having with our clients and sort of captive owners all the time. You know, it's, it's a regular conversation we have with them all where we're running through the our risk management survey, looking at the results and saying, you know, which of these risks um, are key risks for you? And let's try and let's try and design something that you can put through your captive. Mm. But do you think this has sort of changed maybe in the last sort of decade or so? You know, I, I, know, I know you sort of touched on uh, slightly earlier there in the conversation about um, kind of tech, tech industries and or sorry, tech companies sort of, you know, coming to the fore in this space in the sense that, um, you know, there's been a lot of conversation around um, cyber attacks and including sort of state-sponsored cyber attacks against against companies, particularly in the kind of Western world, quote unquote. Um, is this, you know, is this space opening up more, like I say, more than it was maybe, you know, five, 10 years ago? Yeah, so as you'd expect, I guess, given that many established organizations have captives and, um, what we are seeing is captive growth from new and growing businesses. And what's great for Aon and for Guernsey is I think we've established three brand new captives in the last 18 months from all different industries. Um, but as, as you mentioned, a lot of the growing industries these days are tech companies, are things along those lines. So we do see interest in, in these sort of up and coming companies in setting up setting up captives now one that we we launched recently was for uh e-commerce business so unsurprisingly as you as you can probably imagine that there has to be a, a high element of cyber cover in its business plan because it's you know that the underlying company is really around um selling things online to customers so therefore cyber is a very key risk for them um and it's not just pure captives we're seeing because usually to set up a pure captive you 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 you'd argue you need to be above a certain size because it's setting up a, a limited company in its own right with costs and so on around it we're also seeing people setting up protected cells and these protected cells are often being set up by your sort of your your smes your new sort of smaller sort of growing companies and the fast track regime that was introduced in Guernsey a couple of years ago by the GFSC has really helped us see growth in that area. This is sort of coupled with hard markets. Hard markets basically means that um, the premiums get higher. It's it's harder to buy insurance. So so a lot of these smaller companies now we're seeing that insurance is getting a bigger percentage of their, their total costs. So they've looked at ways to reduce those costs. And one of those ways is to either retain the risk so keep some of the risk yourself or maybe to access reinsurance markets because reinsurance markets can be cheaper than insurance markets um, so we've seen a lot of examples of companies looking to establish sales for that reason to reduce their cost of their cost of financing their risks and examples that we're seeing a lot of are things like financial institutions looking to set up sales for 
for things like professional indemnity cover, where the price of that sort of insurance has has skyrocketed in the market. I think it, it's leveling off now, but but at least in the last couple of years, it has has grown a lot. And whilst on the subject of financial institutions, we're also starting to see more interest from uh, banks, funds, administrators, company managers, sorry, in captives to see if they can hedge certain risks and free up capital on their, their own balance sheets. So I guess it's fair to say the world's changing and with it, the risks are changing. And what is great is we seem to have um, a solution for most of these changing risks here in Guernsey through either captives or sales. So it's definitely, you know, exciting time to be involved in this space. Definitely. Um, now, in the introduction, I sort of mentioned that you are, of course, director of Global ILS, the, uh, you know, the insurance linked securities arm of Aon. Um, can you talk about how Guernsey is well placed to sort of facilitate innovation and collaboration between the, the kind of captive ILS um, and longevity markets and, and why this might be in, of interest to sort of, you know, and value to captive owners? Yeah, so, so insurance-linked securities, or ILS, are really an alternative to traditional insurance capacity. So by this, I mean insurance and reinsurance. Now, ILS really came about on the back of events like Hurricane Andrew, after which the insurance and reinsurance capacity dried up. So it wasn't that easy to buy insurance, wasn't that easy to buy reinsurance at at a affordable price anymore. So you could argue that the hardened market conditions I've just mentioned before is a reason why people are looking at sales and captives, um, you know, have created a similar condition or condition in the market with a lack of capacity. So if you if you look at that in comparison to what happened back in the 1980s with Hurricane Andrew, then, you know, there could be an opportunity for, for ILS to, to play a role again. Now, this is also coupled with the fact that ILS funds are seeking new risks to participate in, following on from many years of hurricanes, earthquakes, wildfires, which means that there should be opportunities to sort of match some of these new risks off against the insurance-linked securities market. Now, it's always been a goal of mine and the rest of my colleagues in Aon to bring these two sides of our business together, and really Guernsey is the perfect place to do this. So Guernsey's a renowned domicile for the pension longevity transactions. I think all other than one um, that have been used using an offshore structure have been done through Guernsey. It's, um, it's a major captive domicile, as we said, biggest in Europe, and it's got a history of innovation in the ILS space from the first Catbond Light, which was something called Solidum Iga, to things like the more recent Lloyds of London Central funding deals um, and the Replexus Volcano Bond. So so all the ingredients are there in Guernsey. They're all there. They're underpinned by a robust and pragmatic regulator, meaning that you know we're well positioned to fit together all of those pieces of the jigsaw and bring all parts of that of that world together. Now we've already seen examples of this with a transaction we did probably about three years ago now with with a company, an ILS manager called Securis, where where we established a sell for them, which was in fact, in fact reinsuring an existing longevity swap. So here we brought the longevity swap and the ILS worlds together. Um, what so we can continue to do this with other sort of sort of risks or covers if if needs be, or if we can join the dots. The value really to captive owners is if you can bring the ILS and captives together, then you can probably find and secure new capacity that can be more bespoke to captive owners. And it can be cost effective to our captive clients 
and also potentially sort of um, be profitable to our ILS clients. Yeah, definitely. Um, I'd like to sort of discuss now sustainability um, with you. And sustainable finance is something that is sort of integral to virtually now everything we do here here at Guernsey Finance, um, promotionally speaking almost as well. Uh, and it's and it's of course central to the finance industry um here in Guernsey. I think you know it's becoming ever more important in the insurance industry locally as well. Um Aon has recently released a report um, on using a captive insurance company to drive positive ESG outcomes. I've got a couple of questions on this, but but firstly, yeah. can I just ask what are some of the positive ESG outcomes that captive owners might look to address? Is this purely risk mitigation or are there some value opportunities in there as well? So firstly, I'd like to think that captives are in a pretty unique position. They can link the broader economy to the financial world. So they're like, you can be sort of like financial entities owned by non-financial organizations. So um, broadly speaking, captives are treated in a similar way to, to commercial insurance with governance requirements, disclosure requirements, but they're focused very much on on one customer, their parent. So what this does, it allows you to get a bit more down into the detail of the risks. Um, So what's happening at the parent level as opposed to the broader market position that your traditional insurance company would see. So this means you can get an understanding of the risks. You can think about how you could offset or mitigate them and you can promote sustainable practices well when you know the traditional market may simply decline to insure something because it's considered as say a dirty risk or something based upon the record of, of the whole sector. So therefore captive it's in a good position to act as a catalyst for change and transition within the company. Now I think studies have shown that organizations that take ESG and sustainability seriously, on average, I think they achieve better results. So therefore if if a captive can help sort of drive sustainable practices it can be good it can only be good for its parent right so there's a big value opportunity there to begin with so if you can if a captive can help you meet some of those esg and and sustainability goals then automatically it can it can help deliver better returns for your for your organization um we we also take this all very seriously a on one of my colleagues um, Kieran Healy, he developed a concept that we call the Green Captive as a way for captive owners to help improve their um, ESG position. Now, in summary, you know, your captive takes a position on risks linked to climate change. So, for example, it could charge a higher premium for risks linked to causing climate change issues, and it could use the profits that it make from, from those premiums into ESG-aligned investments or for improving risk management at a group level. Um, many captives, they, they loan their excess funds back to its parent. So, so that's the funds it's generated through the profits they've generated through insurance activity. So you can lend funds back to your parent with conditions attaching to it, you know, along the lines of we'll lend you this money back, but it should be used for transitional projects or for improving sort of risk man- ESG risk management um, practices. Another way you can do that is through bursaries where the captive's profits are used to fund initiatives improving ESG risk management. And what these things can do is they can offset the underlying risks that we're insuring. And then your captive becomes like an agent for continuous ESG improvement and at the parent level, kind of like a virtuous circle um, where we can keep on keep on improving the the ESG um, part of the of the parent business. Um, and when 
I described captives at the start. I mentioned how you could identify risks, trends, you could capture that data. Now, the consolidation of all this data in a captive can also help your parent identify risks, can help them quantify the ESG risks and report on them, which all, of course, feeds into the reporting that they now have to do at a, at a central level. And uh, so I guess ESG considerations becoming more and more important in the world of insurance and the data that captives can capture um, and, and can incubate within the captive can be very useful to, to their parent organisations. Mm. And the report also examines some of the practical ways a captive can support sustainability objectives through through its kind of four key pillars, if you like. Um, can you talk me through through these pillars? Yeah, so underwriting is definitely the right pillar to start on, I guess, as underwriting is is the key role of a captive, and it's also a um, a core part of the UN um, principles of sustainable insurance, which says that ESG should play a, a role in insurance underwriting process. Now, a way to achieve this is is through the ESG metrics being used, being linked to those of of the captive's parent. In the example we've seen previously and something we mentioned in the report we did, um, you can see it linked to the parents' STGs, such as carbon, water usage, plastic production, for example. And this can help reporting and feeding into to their goals. I mentioned pricing in the last question. So if you incorporate ESG-related metrics into your assessments and measurements of risks, um, then you could consider that along with um, traditional market pricing methods to come up with the right price from a premium perspective. So you can underwrite, so you can underwrite sort of accurately with with accurate data, so on and so forth. As well, I guess it's not just for pricing. It can be used to help assess um, the scale of the risks. It can be used to create awareness of the risks within the parent and therefore the downside of not meeting those risks from a parent perspective and them not meeting their STGs. If you incorporate ESG into the captive's underwriting approach, it can also lead to, um, well, you'll have to look at it when you're doing all the board or have to look at it when it's looking at its solvency calculations. So in Guernsey, um, boards of captives have to provide own solvency capital assessments. So ESG risk should really be considered there and therefore considered in the capital adequacy decision-making, particularly downside risk of, of failing to meet targets. So you could almost use your, your captive as a way to sort of pre-fund future risks by retaining funds within your vehicle that can be, be used when needed. Now, all in all, these metrics can help its parent organization um, through its captive identify areas of of its business that may disrupt um you know the transition and, and risks and not meeting its its stgs now i think the next one was it was investment so i mentioned earlier investing in esg aligned investment products now traditionally captives have invested in cash short dated deposits government bills t bills that sort of thing um moving to esg aligned investment products may appear on the face of it to add more complexity to this part of the captive's business. But what we're seeing increasingly is financial institutions and asset managers um, offering new products with um, sustainability credentials that can still meet a captive's liquidity requirements. Um, As with all captives, however, the aim of the game should be to match your liabilities to your assets. And 
you can argue that some of the ESG or liabilities could be longer term. So the risks, the ESG risks that you're putting into your captive may have a long horizon before they have to pay out any any claims, if, especially if they're linked to climate change. So when you start looking at the sort of longer term investment opportunities in the ESG space, then they are, they're a lot higher. For example, you've got green bonds, you've got green funds, you've got the Guernsey Green Fund, for example. Um, so this longer term view doesn't necessarily come with a higher capital charge on solvency. Um, recently, the Guernsey Financial Services Commission, they introduced a green captive or a green discount on capital for long-term life insurers, so which are investing in, in green assets. So that really encourages people with long-term risks to actually, um, or gives them an incentive to invest into green assets. So who's to say really that um, we can apply similar to, to captives going forward? And for captives, parents, increasingly banks, shareholders, corporate debt providers that they're focusing on climate change and ESG issues. And therefore, if your captive is investing in ESG compliant products through a subsidiary, it can help you as a parent organization with, with your sources of capital, keeping your shareholders happy um, and raising potentially new capital from, from banks and, and other organization. Um, it can also, as the captive can also help in, in risk management and improvements. I think I mentioned this briefly um, on the green captive. The data collected in the captive through underwriting can help identify where ESG risks exist. So if you use the funds generated by the captive to reduce this risk, you can create this continuous improvement model or virtual virtuous circle, as, as we said before. Um, I think I mentioned bursaries as before as well. Um, if we get another example we give in our report is around biodiversity. So if a company is completing a construction project, it could offer a bursary to a financial, um, towards financial sort of transitional projects around the site. So it could say, you know, if, you know, by insuring with us, we will pay you a bursary to fund certain things, either to, either to fund the um, replanting or fund other things around the site to, um, to improve the biodiversity, or it could also be used to do fund things like biodiversity risk assessment. So there's there's lots of things that we can do with with bursaries to to then give back to the parent to sort of fund things that will improve the ESG aspect of things that the parent is doing. Now, I think the next one. So we one of the other pillars was societal resilience and transition support. Um, now, this is really all about the protection gap. The protection gap continues to widen sort of all over the world. So that's really about not having insurance protection against natural disasters. If you look about if you look around about where most of these disasters happen, arguably it's it's the areas where there isn't insurance protection where they where they suffer the most. So at Aon, what we do, um, we've got a team that's focused on bridging this protection gap, which I'm pleased to be be part of. It brings together parts of our entire business. And what we're looking here at is um, solutions to help. And one of the parts of that that we're looking at is how captives could could help bridge that protection gap. So what we are seeing is that insurance is increasingly being looked at by NGOs, that's non-government organizations, to support in in the event of a disaster. And we'll go on to discuss this a little bit later with, on the humanitarian piece, I think. Um, but perhaps captives could be used 
in a similar way to provide insurance to underserved sort of parts of society. And in doing so, they could also like supply their, their supply chain. For example, if you've got a confectionery company, it could provide weather insurance or weather-related cover to to its captive through its captive, sorry, to help farmers recover from extreme weather events. Um, then they could be back producing their cocoa beans quickly, which helps, you know, helps protect the supply chain, also helps the farmers to recover, which is good for the local community. Um, so the captive could be used to to do something like that. It could also be used to access reinsurance capital or or parametric type covers, which can be linked to weather events to, to cover this. So if you were to link the object, so quite often the sort of captive parents, they have charitable foundations, they have these sort of things that, that do support humanitarian efforts or, or ESG or, or ESG things. So if you can line your captive up along with the objectives of your parent, its charitable foundations, then potentially you could help the captive can help increase the parent's impact on these causes that it supports. Mm, certainly. Very interesting. Um, sort of changing track now and, and, and taking a bit of a step back, I suppose. Um, you know, Guernsey as a jurisdiction has worked sort of very closely with um, the United Nations Environment Programme and, and its finance initiatives over the last sort of probably, you know, five, six, seven years now. Um, and Guernsey's insurance industry has been no different. Um, and, and it's worked closely with, of course, the, the PSI, the, the Principles for Sustainable Insurance. Um, how useful do you think principles like these are from, from the UN in building in kind of a sustainability consideration for the insurance industry? Yeah, so I think UN PSIs are important and um, Guernsey's insurance industry, it recognised this a while ago. So GEAR became a signatory of the UN PSIs, I think it was back in 2020, as a way to help captive in, and insurance clients to measure and articulate their sort of their contribution toward, towards ESG. Mm. Now, I think as a group at Aon, we were probably one step ahead of this. We were the first business in the insurance broking community to adopt the principles ourselves back in back in 2018. So if we if we move forward a little bit, following on from this sort of Guernsey um, introduced the frame the ESG framework or, or Kite Mark back in 2021. Um, the first and probably a key pillar to this Kite Mark is around governance and that ESG is embedded in decision making. So I guess if you're appointing a Guernsey-based insurance manager such as Aon, um, it's a member of GEAR, you can then be confident that your, you know, your manager is part of or a member of a body that is signed up to the PSIs as, as GEAR is signed up to those PSIs. So that should give that should give a certain amount of comfort to organizations, you know, setting up a captive in Guernsey and, and looking and looking for a manager. And it's not just the UN PSIs that were key to um to this framework. It was also their sustainable development goals. So the STGs, which which form part of the Guernsey framework that was put in place. So so the UN's various principles and goals and stuff played a big role in that in that framework that we put in place um now the u.s un sorry not u.s the un psis were launched i think they were launched over 20 years ago now as a way to sort of strengthen the world's insurance industry's um contribution towards esg and i saw a stat i think it was in october 2022 that over 220 organizations have signed up to this, thus insurance organisations, and they'd contributed sort of, I think it was over a third of the world's 
insurance premiums have gone through companies that were signed up to the PSIs. And so it's being taken seriously by major insurers as well. So with ESG and other similar factors being so important, I think it's important for the insurance industry, including captives, to embrace this because it's very much the direction of travel. So by recognizing this early, as both um, Aon and Guernsey did, it does really put the island in a great position to be, you know, front of the queue to um, to grow in this space. But we at Aon, and part of the reason why we did the report on the PSIs is we worked with the UN and a client, although unfortunately not a Guernsey client, to sign up to the UN PSIs last year. So this was the first captive to do that in the world, and we hope that that many more will follow. The principles, are, you know, they provide a great framework and a great opportunity for us to put this into place for for other captives and it helps their parents to publicly demonstrate that their subsidiaries have adopted the PSI so it takes sustainable insurance accountability transparency etc sort of like seriously so from a if we look from a Guernsey perspective um, the PSI is great it shows the island is committed to developing green and sustainable finance. It provides us with a framework to allow the industry in Guernsey to play its part in, in building that resilient and sustainable future. I take great pride in our involvement as an island So, and doing so many firsts when I meet people. I often mention Guernsey was a you know, the birthplace of the first PCC. That's that's White Rock, you know, 1997. The first humanitarian cat bond done at Reed Volcano Bond. The first ESG kite mark again issued to done at Reed the Volcano Bond. So I'd like to think that, you know, the captives signing up to the PSI is 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 the next step in the evolution after the ESG framework, which is great now. You know, when when I'm talking about people signing up to the PSIs with their captives, I can say, but of course still the the framework in Guernsey was the first one. So it is still there. It's still a good message for Guernsey to be giving that we were we were there first and look what ha- what has happened since. Certainly. Uh, and finally, just a final question, and I have to ask you this because you, you have also worked very closely with several humanitarian charities ensuring sort of disaster relief funds can quickly get to the places that need it most um, when disaster strikes. Can you just tell me a little bit more about this? Yeah, so this all really started for us with the Danish Red Cross volcano bond that we did through um, Dunant Ree, which was launched a, a few years ago. That was a wor- the world's first humanitarian cat bond at the time. So with humanitarian organizations, what they can deploy in the event of a disaster is really, it's historically been limited to the assets they raise. So, you know, the, the people in town giving you the stickers for your pound that you put in the tin, that sort of thing, they collect that money and that's what they have to spend in the event of a, of a disaster. They can't leverage their balance sheet like um, other financial, like financial institutions where they can't take out a loan. They're reliant on donor funding. So, so what a transaction like these humanitarian type transactions do is it, it allows them to, for a premium, to access a wider pool of sort of funds that can be distributed in the event of a disaster. So if we take the, the Red Cross transaction, for example, the Red Cross paid uh, a premium of $150,000, and for its $150,000, it has access to $3 million of funding in the event of, of a disaster, and that funding comes through capital market investors. So it does almost it does allow them to sort of leverage their you know their their balance sheet to a certain extent and to get more protection than they have, or, or to have more funds to deploy than money that they have in the bank. Um, 
the other important part of these transactions are, or, or this transaction was, it was parametric. So parametric basically means you don't need to prove a loss, right? You, if an event happens, the money's paid out. And that's great because it means the funds get released a lot quicker in the case of the volcano bonds. If, a vol if one of the name, number of named volcanoes erupts, then the payout is calculated based upon the height of the ash cloud and the wind direction. So if the ash cloud is over a certain height and the wind direction is going in a certain direction, then if it blows over certain lands where people live or if it's agricultural land or, or whatever it may be, then of course that's going to increase the payout. But that payout happens immediately. A lot of traditional insurance requires you to bring in your loss adjuster to assess the loss and so on before the insurance paid. So, so the money gets paid back to the Red Cross pretty, pretty quickly. Um, and that means they can deploy their assets to a disaster zone very, very quickly as well and start putting work, the money to work where it's, where it's needed the most. So as I said, it's a, it was a relatively small deal in the scheme of things, but um, the impact was huge. It's still something whenever I go to a conference, it's the first thing people ask me about, you know, tell me about the volcano bonds. So it definitely gathered a lot of attention. And we are working on further projects around things like protection of the Philippine mangrove forests with the Red Cross. So that's something we hope to finish at some point this year. So, so watch this space. And I would say it's not just the Red Cross. There's more humanitarian organizations who are interested. Um, along with my Aon Bridging the Protection Gap team, we've been speaking to organizations all over the world, people like the World Bank, the United Nations, other parts of the Red Cross other charitable organizations and NGOs talking about replicating what we're doing here or we've done here, but bigger. And again, hopefully we can have some more news on that for you guys soon. Brilliant. Well, um, thank you very much, Mike, for joining us on the podcast today. No, thank you. Yeah, it was fascinating to understand some of the innovative ways that captives can be used, particularly with regards to the climate and the environment as well. Um, and thanks also to you for listening. If you enjoyed this discussion, we have a backlog of interviews on the We Are Guernsey podcast channel. You can check them out by searching for We Are Guernsey on your preferred podcast platform. We also have links to Mike and Aon in our show notes, so check them out to hear more from them. And to find out more about Guernsey and its specialist financial services industry, head over to our website, weareguernsey.com. We look forward to welcoming you back to the podcast, but until then, it's goodbye from Guernsey.